Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name is Elise Glink, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I'm a best-selling author, radio talk show host, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and last April, as part of its ongoing effort to be helpful to you in this time of intense economic pain, the company launched an extensive COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center. You can find it at Equifax.com. This year has been so overwhelming in almost every way I can think of, financially, politically, emotionally, and in all matters that have to do with health. This podcast is part of the effort to help expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country, as well as some of Equifax's own subject matter experts who are here to help you with your credit questions. We discuss real-world financial solutions and share resources for people just like you who want to protect your credit and manage your finances during this pandemic. In this episode, we'll be talking with Kendall Keeling, Core Exchange's lead for Equifax, and Marietta Rodriguez, NeighborWorks America President and CEO. Let's start with Kendall Keeling, Core Exchange's lead for Equifax, to talk a little bit about building back better credit in 2021. Hi, Kendall. Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Hi, Elise. Thanks for having me. It has been such a tough year for people, and I know that there are so many people who have just been waiting to see this year in the rearview mirror. <laughs> COVID, I think, has affected everybody's finances, some in good ways, right, and some definitely not. Credit scores, though, seem to be up, which is interesting. Do you have any insight into why that might be? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think we've noticed and we've we've all pondered the fact that credit scores uh, did not take the hit that everyone expected, um, even though we had you know record unemployment. And we've all all of the the credit bureaus have looked at this and discussed and and tried to to really understand what could be behind this phenomena. And I think. It's a combination of things, right? The CARES Act being in place to kind of hold steady uh, delinquency status reporting it is, I do believe, a, a nice part of this. Um, the other thing is, you know, you had the stimulus checks that went out for people. You had, you know, moratoriums on evictions and different things like that. And you also had a lot of people who did not have a negative uh, employment impact, right? A lot of people kept their jobs um, and and then some of these people still got stimulus payments. So what we saw, saw the scores go up, but we also saw, you know, the underlying factors go in line with that. For instance, uh, you know, debt went down overall for, for a good period of time and I believe it's still down overall. So where they weren't out doing a lot of discretionary spending because they couldn't, right? They couldn't take that trip to Greece that they wanted to take or they couldn't. Um, right. They couldn't couldn't go out to dinner. They couldn't, that's right. you know, right. go shopping the same way they might have otherwise gone shopping. Right. So what it looks like is that they took some of that money and along perhaps with their stimulus payments and paid down debt. Um, so we were quite surprised to hear some of this behavior happening um, because we kind of assumed that people would start to struggle and we'd start to see that. And I think people, you know, feel probably pretty empowered that they were able to pay down some of this debt and get themselves into a place where they are not at risk. And again, a lot of people didn't lose their jobs. For those that did, you know, we tried to put things in place to help protect 
their scores and their credit history. I think it was effective. I think the CARES Act has been very effective in trying to protect credit histories and credit scores for consumers in general. I have to say, I think you're right. You know, as somebody who was documenting what was happening to people with the last recession, right, the Great Recession back 10, 12 years ago, you really saw people get crushed. And a lot of that had to do with they didn't have like a mortgage forbearance program. This time, nine plus million people, about 20 percent of all people who have mortgages took advantage of it. That's um, right. And now it's down to 5%. And, and they didn't have that 10 years ago. It well, would have saved a lot of people a lot of hell, actually. Well, and so there have been all of the forbearance programs and the deferments, those have been in place for some time. And they've been utilized in past you know, disasters. So the difference here is that in past disasters, they were usually you know a small geographic area with the exception of the Great Recession, right? So I think that was the big difference. I mean, there was a big awareness. There was, there were, you know, people were reaching out to their customers in a way that we hadn't seen before because there hadn't been this urgency uh, like there was this time. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I mean, there was urgency and there was a scarcity of real information about what COVID was and what was going to happen and how we were all going to respond to it. And so it, it's really paid off that people haven't had to worry. That said, a lot of these forbearance programs are coming to an end. Right now, the federal student loan forbearance program is scheduled to end December 31st. That's been pushed out a couple of times. Mortgage forbearance, uh, there's still a possibility you could renew it for another six months. Uh, but for some people, it's coming to an end. Uh, you know, the cliff comes and everybody starts to having to make their payments. What happens inside the three credit reporting bureaus with the reporting? Does it just all revert back to the way it used to be? Well, the, the rules around the CARES Act had a, an outside window of how long the national emergency was in place, right? So the things that are happening within the CARES Act and the, the original agreement to, to hold steady the delinquency, that is still going to be in place. Let's say, for instance, we had someone who um, had a couple credit cards and a car loan um, when this started, and they used um, their stimulus and their unemployment supplements to pay off the credit cards completely and now they have the car loan so they're in a a better place than they were um before covid started and they you know lost their job or got furloughed but they still have that car loan and they still don't have that income so it, it may not look like it did before but it's certainly going to start to exhibit the same payment behaviors and patterns that people would have um, when they don't have an income so the, the, the mandate to hold steady the delinquency exists as long as the accommodation exists. I mean, it really does depend on the, the borrower's individual situation, um, their relationship with that lender, how much debt they started with, how much debt they have now. So we are all a little concerned about what it's going to look like when, when these accommodations run out. So it's going to be a struggle going forward if you are making less than you were before, but you still have the new bills that have cropped up. Uh, they, they've come up with some loan modifications for people who really can't afford to pay, uh, where they take the missing amount, they stick it on the back of the loan. Do you happen to know, uh, you know, if, if you come out of that forbearance, mortgage forbearance, and you do need to take one of those accommodations, do you know how that will all get reported 
Yeah, well, so again, there are several options that the mortgage uh, providers have. Uh, they, you mentioned adding it on to the end. That's, that's a possibility. They can also do an additional loan with the forbearance amount. Uh, so there's there's several options, and and hopefully the borrower and the lender would work together to to put something together that is realistic for that borrower. You know, six months ago, eight months ago, we wouldn't have thought in a million years that we would see debt go down in a situation like this. So I'm very optimistic that you know this is going to have the best possible outcome that it can. Hopeful that we'll get some additional help and support um, from the government through this, but. Um, you know, it's not going to work for everyone, certainly. So last question, Kendall, if you have to give people a couple of things they should try to do as they come out of these different forbearances or there, there are some different cliffs out here, what would be your best pieces of advice in order to start, you know, building back the better credit or t- to maintain the better credit you now have? I know everybody learns this, you know, kind of trope, saving money for a rainy day and things like that. We just had, you know, nine, eight months of rainy days. And so I think people are going to have a much greater appreciation for how important that is to have a lifeline that you can rely on when things don't go your way. And sometimes that lifeline can't be your credit card, right? I think that's the way a lot of people grew up with, well, I have a credit card for emergencies. So building savings is going to be really important. As soon as people get to where they can, they'll have a very strong memory of like how important it is to have that safety net. The other thing is it's back to the basics on credit. You know, do not borrow more than you can afford to pay back. Uh, And that means, you know, you might really want that car. But when you really sit down and look at your budget, that's when you need to say, maybe I shouldn't take that loan. I should ask for a, a smaller loan. That's that's something that's going to be important. And then also the um, not being late on payments, right? I mean, I think everybody's very tuned into now that correlation between late payments and credit scores. You can see it has a huge impact. So it's really important that you budget so that you don't make late payments. And again, that's tied back to not, not having more bills than you can afford to pay. So it's, it's really, really important to, to budget, to look holistically at what you can pay for now, what you could pay for in a crisis, and plan out your, your spending that way and your borrowing that way. Kendall Keeling is Core Exchange's lead for Equifax. Thanks so much for helping us out here. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It was great to talk to you. Let's turn to housing. Today, with millions of people unemployed and pushed to the brink financially, we're on the verge of another housing crisis. Now, despite the help that's out there, thousands of homeowners are not taking advantage of forbearance assistance. And if we don't mitigate this issue, we'll see another generation of black and brown families stripped of wealth as a result of our inability as an industry to act. NeighborWorks America is a leader in helping people become homeowners and sustain their homes. Marietta Rodriguez is the president and CEO of NeighborWorks America. She joins me now to discuss these topics, as well as how black, Hispanic, and other minority communities can use homeownership to build generational wealth. Marietta, thanks for joining me on the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about the history of NeighborWorks America and how the organization helps people. 
NeighborWorks America has a rich history working across the United States. We were actually created by Congress. We're a very interesting entity in that we carry a congressional charter and we were created in Congress in the late 70s to help fight disinvestment and fight redlining in communities and bring investment and help revitalize urban corridors across the country. We've evolved over the last 40 years. Uh, we support a network of locally based nonprofits that focus on housing opportunities, both rental and home ownership. Uh, we also provide a fair amount of training and capacity building in the community development and housing industry. But we've had a, a, a front row seat to many of the housing challenges this country has faced in the last 40 years. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about what we've learned and what we can play forward. Well, let's start with uh, foreclosures and forbearance programs and the struggles that people have had because of COVID-19 this year. So your organization has noted that foreclosures have started to move up, and yet there's still like 5 million people who are in a mortgage forbearance program, about 10% of people who have mortgages. Good news, that's down from the 9% uh, when it was at the high at the middle of the year. But you seem to think, or your organization seems to think, that that portends some trouble in terms of the number of foreclosures. So tell us about that relationship between forbearance and foreclosures, and what are you seeing out there? Certainly, we are excited that the forbearance program is out there and that so many people have taken advantage of it. But the reality remains is there are close to half a million homeowners that are delinquent on their mortgage today and have not asked for forbearance um, who are otherwise eligible. So what that tells us is there's a group of buyers out there that potentially are eligible for relief um, that are losing equity in their home every day. And all they really need to do is outreach to their servicer. The challenge is there's a lot of misinformation out there about the forbearance program. When it first came out, there was a lot of communication and a lot of press that for the amount of time your lender would forbear on, on receiving payments from you, you would have to pay that back in a lump sum. And there's a lot of different options in which to remedy or make your mortgage whole. And I think that um, confused people and I think that made people less likely to take the forbearance. For those that are in forbearance today, those that you mentioned, I think the question is, when is their forbearance going to expire? We have a whole host of those mortgages that are getting ready to expire after six months that can be renewed for an additional six months. And then in a couple more months, we'll have another batch that maybe have been in forbearance for 12 months and they're at a place where they need to figure out what the next step is. Most people are tentative in wanting to have those kinds of conversations with their servicer because maybe their situation hasn't improved. Maybe their income hasn't increased. Maybe they went back to work and then were laid off again because of the spikes of the pandemic. The, the real issue is we really need to encourage people to work through their servicer for options. And if they don't want to work with their servicer or they're a little tentative, there are HUD-approved housing counseling agencies that can also assist them in navigating the process. I think the other thing that your question got to was, what does this portend for, for the future? We are seeing the enhanced unemployment benefits are starting to burn away now. 
So where people may have been able to pay their mortgage, may have been able to cobble together a rent payment, we're really worried about what's going to happen in the first quarter of the next calendar year of 2021. I think we'll start to see the foreclosure uh, rate rise, or at least the delinquency rate rise, and definitely start to see a climb in evictions. Now, one of the things that we talked about before we started the podcast is that there are some lessons from 2008, 9, and 10 in that housing crisis that you think that we could pull forward to today. But maybe we're not smart enough to do that. So tell me what you think some of those are. I don't know if you recall, but when the FDIC took over IndyMac Bank, they released a waterfall or a set of remedies or loan workouts that really created a threshold for the industry. And it was clear, it was this is, these were the workouts that we're gonna utilize, and it created a standard for the mortgage industry. We don't have that today. It, every servicer is implementing their forbearance program within a set of standards, but with a slightly different flavor on it. And I think that if we could get the industry to talk about more of a standard forbearance and standard waterfall, that could really help in communicating to these borrowers that are that we haven't been able to contact. So I think that's the, the first lesson. I think the second lesson is when the 2008 mortgage crisis hit, there was leadership at the in mortgage industry level, at the federal level, and even in the nonprofit sector. And we all got around a table and we discussed options and we communicated those options to our constituencies, but in the same way. And we don't see that kind of conversation and that kind of leadership yet, but I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do that. I also think that the third lesson is there was new, there were new tools and um, new strategies that came out of those discussions that we all employed. And I think we're starting to see some of that. An industry group recently got together and formulated a, um, a little mini media blitz for those um, home buyers that were eligible for forbearance and put out some ads and are using social media to try to get to them. We did a a national ad council campaign whose theme was there's nothing worse than doing nothing during the foreclosure crisis to try to elicit people to take action. I think when people are in crisis, whether it was in 2008 or now, people are in crisis. They're managing the pandemic. They're managing potential income loss due to, to job changes. They're homeschooling their children. They're trying to keep them their family healthy. There's a lot of things that people are managing and they're, and they're very high levels of anxiety. And it's difficult to layer upon that than navigating a very complex financial system on top of that. So I think we need to send out some lifelines to borrowers and to renters that there are people in communities today that can help them with rental assistance or navigating um, the delinquency structure with their loan servicer. And that's utilizing a, a, a nonprofit housing counselor. Let's turn a little bit to minority home ownership. So black families 
experience homeownership at a far lower rate, right? They, they buy homes um, at a lower rate, but they experience foreclosure at a higher rate than white homeowners across the country. Hispanics are doing better than blacks, but not by a whole lot, and certainly far less than white homeowners. But yet, homeownership, as, as you know, and I know, because I've been writing about this for so many years, you know, this is a key when it comes to generating wealth, wealth that, that lasts beyond one generation, but becomes kind of generational wealth. Why is it, do you think, that black families are not able and have not been as able to take advantage of homeownership? And we can certainly talk about systemic racism and, and some of the other things that I think for many, many years were problematic. How is your organization helping Black and Hispanic families to step into that new role? You know, where can we send our listeners for that kind of guidance? It's a really good question. I think it's worth noting that the Black homeownership rate, the Hispanic homeownership rate right now is a result of years and years of structural barriers that have roots in, in racism and, and other things. We are working really hard to create open pathways, uh, opportunities for people who are interested in homeownership to pursue um, the American dream. We do this in a couple of ways. One, there's a lot of myths around how, particularly if you're a first-time homebuyer, how much money you need down, what your credit score needs to be. So we often encourage people to sit down with a HUD-approved housing counseling agency to just go over your financial picture. Let's not take a guess whether or not you're mortgage ready or not. Let's actually pull your credit. Let's look at your ability to pay, what your rental history has been, if you have one, and figure out how far away or how mortgage ready you are. Oftentimes, we find that a home buyer, a potential home buyer, begins their homeownership search online. They begin to see like what homes are available, and they start to go see them and contact a realtor. I mean, that's sort of natural. Um, we like to ask people to just step back just a little bit. We don't want you to fall in love with a house just yet, because what happens is you fall in love with a house, you may or may not be able to afford it, and then it becomes your realtor's job to find a lender that will lend you money to buy on that house, and then they refer you to a housing counselor. But the two most important decisions have already been made. You've chosen your house, and you probably chosen your mortgage product. What the housing counselor wants to do is help you shop for the right mortgage product for you. And there are a lot of resources available, particularly to first-time homebuyers, to help them get into their first home. For example, there are many down payment assistance programs. There are first-time homebuyer mortgage products offered. But it's hard for a homeowner, or a potential homeowner rather, to figure out what resources are available in their community and then figure out, am I eligible for these? So working with a community group, it's their job to be a resource hub, figure out what's out there, and then they can figure out, based on the information that you've given them, whether or not you're a candidate for any of those resources. Then they can begin to provide linkages to the lender that's providing the best mortgage product for your circumstance. Um, and they may even know of homes that may not have hit MLS yet um, that are coming on the market in your price range. So is NeighborWorks America a free program for people who call? Are there costs involved to work with a HUD housing counselor? 
Typically, many of the services that I've discussed are free or very low cost. Um, for some of the homebuyer education classes, um, there is a cost for materials, but they'll disclose all of that to you. Remember, this: if you're buying a home, this is one of the biggest single investments you'll ever make. And so if you have to spend $50 to, or $100 to take a class, for a $100,000 purchase, that's a pretty good return on your investment. But for most, for the most part, uh, they are low cost or no cost services. How can people find out more about NeighborWorks America? What is the website? Our website is www.neighborworks.org. And there is a NeighborWorks lookup. You can look up by state or by zip code. And then you can see who's active in, in your community. Marietta Rodriguez is the president and CEO of NeighborWorks America. Thank you so much for joining us and providing some insight for people who might want to buy a home in 2021. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com and check out the other episodes. You can find me at BestMoneyMoves.com. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Glink. Thanks for listening.